I wish our partners in parliaments and also in governments would speak a little bit more creatively about the value for money that they actually receive in return. I think this perception that the United Nations is in a sense a, a place where bureaucracy and inefficiency reign is um, often a misperception. And, and I think it would do us all good if we could have more agreed criteria and metrics to actually measure this. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. My guest this week is Achim Steiner, the head of a key UN agency working on global development, UNDP. Akim has served across the United Nations system. He was the Director General of the United Nations Office in Nairobi, and between 2006 and 2016, he led the United Nations Environment Program, where he prioritized investments in clean technologies and renewable energy. Akim has also held other notable positions, including Director General of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and Secretary General of the World Commission on Dams. In this conversation, Akim and I discussed a range of issues, including what is required for the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, the UNDP's approach to tackling climate change and promoting sustainable development, the current status of UN reforms, and the role of multilateralism and global cooperation in a post-COVID world. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's great to see you again, Akim. It's been a couple of years since we last met. Welcome to my show. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Akim, a lot, of course, has happened since we last met, not least the pandemic. And I'm aware, as all of my listeners, I'm sure, are aware that the UN General Assembly, the 76th session, was recently held. And I know that you attended several of these sessions. There were lots of interesting discussions. The theme for the session was of course, building resilience through hope to recover from the pandemic. And I believe all kinds of issues were discussed. Of course, there was food systems, climate, energy. What, according to you, were the main takeaways, Akim, from this meeting of world leaders who were actually able to come and meet in person for the first time in a while? Well, I think probably the, the last point, Dan, is uh, the most important one in the midst of you know a pandemic, in the midst of so many things that are really causing a great deal of stress and distress across the world, we actually saw leaders from across the world wanting to come to New York for this UN General Assembly high-level segment in September because it not only symbolizes uh, a place where the world comes together, it was also an expression of we have to deal with things at national level, but we need international cooperation. We need international solidarity. And I think we were all surprised how many countries came at heads of state, head of government level. They obviously had a great deal of restrictions in terms of delegations, but that didn't stop them from coming. Side events had to go into virtual mode, and yet um, there was a distinct difference to last year. This week, in a sense, made the UN come alive. And I think it was, in that sense, an expression of hope and, uh, and resilience, because um, we are still in the midst of a pandemic. And uh, I think the world is struggling to find ways out of this um, multiple set of challenges that we no doubt will talk about in, in the podcast in a moment. So, Akim, I'm glad that you mentioned this global cooperation aspect. You've been a big supporter of strengthening multilateralism, global cooperation. But some, of course, would say that in the last few years, we've seen a crisis of traditional multilateralism, that even though a lot of people say we should strengthen global cooperation, there seem to be many barriers. And so the question is, are we witnessing a crisis of traditional multilateralism? Do we need a new form of multilateralism? Can we expect countries with very different priorities and values to come together and work for what is often perceived to be common goals, but with different angles. Is that possible? 
Now, let me begin by saying, I think since 1945 and for the past 75 years, there have always been some who have seen the United Nations in crisis and multilateralism being put into question. So I think to my understanding of history, this is not something new indeed. Multilateralism, in some respects, is a perma-crisis because it's the constant tension between national sovereignty, between a collective commitment to act together, and then the deviation that may come out of political moments in a country's history or events such as this pandemic or the Cold War. So, you know, the UN just celebrated its 75th anniversary. Its ideas, its ideals, I think, are as uncontested as they were 75 years ago. And yet the 75-year history of the United Nations is um, in a sense full of moments when people question the Security Council, the ability to act collectively, the United Nations with its specialized agencies, funds and programs being able to make a difference. So there is a constant and, and perhaps justified also set of questions. But fact is that we live in a moment in time where indeed the ability of nations to succeed in tackling some of these real challenges that we now face are more premised on acting collectively and therefore on the notion of multilateralism than perhaps at any point in time since the United Nations were founded. And I think that is why we will continue to see the questioning, but I think not with the intent of getting rid of the United Nations, but indeed to get it to evolve and to be able to use it as a community of nations to tackle precisely the things that are reflected in the Charter or in the Declaration of Human Rights, but also in the 2030 Agenda, which is really the latest expression of nations since 2015 of how we have at least a shared plan in moving forward in the 21st century. So crisis after crisis is a phenomenon of, of the way the world works. The question is, does the United Nations provide, first of all, a center of gravity for nations to be able to continue to talk to one another, secondly, to stand up responses. And I think um, there are many examples in the past where we have succeeded. There are many examples where we have failed. And I think that is the reality of multilateralism. You know, there's something new, at least it appears to me, what we've witnessed because of the pandemic, that there's much more interest now in global public goods and the provision of global public goods. And and you are, you're right about the 2030 agenda. In fact, for me, that is a wonderful expression of a global public good in terms of sustainable development. But because of the pandemic, because of, some would claim, the failure of COVAX, vaccine distribution, what we are witnessing is a, is a situation where inequalities have become extremely stark. And these global inequalities are leading some developing countries to question the motives of, say, richer countries. And in that sense, I wonder whether we have, in many ways, made it difficult for countries to come together the next time there's a, a crisis of such magnitude. Well, let's first of all note that where we began this conversation with this year's UN General Assembly session, I think one of the very clear things that happened here is that nations were talking to each other and through the General Assembly to the world at large precisely to articulate the, the phenomenon of, of, you know, some called it vaccine apartheid, vaccine famine, vaccine inequity. Indeed, um, you know, the Secretary General yesterday with the Director General of the WHO again held a press conference to try and tackle this terrible situation that we face right now. So I think Everybody is justified in, you know, recognizing in where we are right now on the vaccine front that there has been a significant failure. In some ways, we had an extraordinary breakthrough with science. And the United Nations indeed last year put forward COVAX precisely to avoid the kind of situation that the world is now in, where those who either have the money or have control over the production have access to vaccines and the rest of the world comes somewhere down the line. This is not only fundamentally unacceptable from an ethical point of view, but it also is self-defeating in terms of the pandemic and containing the virus itself. So the United Nations set up COVAX, approached countries and said, we need financing now, that is last year, in order to be able to put in the orders that allow us to then ensure that we have a more equitable access and distribution of vaccines. Unfortunately, the world, as it has on a number of occasions, failed multilateralism at this moment because it did not step up and provide the United Nations with the means. So what happened? The UN essentially had to step to the back of the queue in terms of orders and was not able to roll out COVAX while countries who had production and funds had essentially cornered the market and could vaccinate their populations. 
This is a lesson in why multilateralism is not just something you use when the fire has already broken out. Multilateralism is meant to prevent crisis, not simply to be an ambulance or a fire brigade service when, when things have already gone wrong. And I think COVID-19 will and will continue to teach us some very hard lessons here. Yeah, you know, I can't agree with you more. I'm a big uh, fan of multilateralism, you know, but whenever there are these discussions, Akim, about stepping up global public investments, providing global public goods, whenever there is talk about the world coming together, we end up overlooking the fact, the, the, the politics of global cooperation. And without mentioning, you know, specific countries, there are differences in terms of the vision for global development and the terms that are required for, for the promotion of global development. And in terms of, you know, the vaccine nationalism issue, we see that there is growing dissatisfaction in some parts of the world that, you know, the rich countries are being very selfish. And I'm wondering whether you think somehow the credibility of the UN has slipped in recent months, in recent years, or do you think it has been enhanced? What is, in your view, the status of the UN brand today? That's a tough question to answer because I think it depends on, the, you know, what you are judging the UN uh, for and who you are in the world. I think in some respects, there will be many who will be disappointed because if you assume that the United Nations is a counter proposition to vaccine nationalism, then clearly we have only partially succeeded. The fact that at the end of the day, nations had to come back together and, and are using the WHO and COVAX and um, you know, the Secretary General also continuously appealing to the G20 to show leadership. And all of these things, in a sense, converge to nations uh, perhaps now recognizing more clearly that they um, cannot only ask things of multilateralism or the United Nations, they must also step up and contribute. And I think this will always be a tension that is there. But if you ask me about the brand, well, we actually did a very big survey on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And I think you know, in many ways, the idea and ideals, which I mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, I think remain very much ones that define the UN brand. And that is um, in large part by the vast majority of people across the world seen as something positive, where I think you will and quite rightly point to is the failures of not the brand, but then the world working through the United Nations actually being able to live up to the expectations. And we have as many failures as we have successes. Sometimes it is also the moment in time. People are rightly getting increasingly frustrated with um, you know, the lack of progress or the speed with which we're progressing on issues such as climate change. And yet I would say, imagine if the United Nations had not put in place an intergovernmental panel on climate change, the science, so to speak, being liberated from national interest and informing the world about where we were 30 years ago. A framework convention that is as emblematic for intransigence and inertia as it is sometimes for extraordinary breakthroughs. Um, look at the Paris Agreement. I think we, we probably have to acknowledge that um, more often than not, we cannot live up to people's expectations. But I think far more often than people might be aware, the UN is foundational to things that we then take for granted in our world. And that perhaps is a conversation that uh, merits drilling deeper in the way that the UN communicates its, um, its daily work also to the public. Akim, I've always been fascinated with the UNDP. It is, of course, one of the most important, influential, major actors in global development. And you have, of course, a long sort of track record in the UN. You've been, you've headed the UNEP, you've, you head UNDP. How is it to actually lead this organization, this huge organization that, that operates in so many parts of the world? What would you say to the listeners? What are the challenges and, you know, how joyful is it to be in New York and head UNDP? Well, let me first of all say it's, it's an extraordinary responsibility because, as you say, UNDP is, you know, amongst the largest of um, the UN entities. It, it's active in 170 countries. Just to give you a sense of the, the dimensions and your listeners, we have 20,000 staff, you know, working across the world. We, at any point in time, are supporting countries through about four and a half to 5,000 projects. So it's a 
it's a tremendous responsibility, first of all, uh, the duty of care of staff, but also to the promise of UNDP, the integrity of what we offer. And in that sense, it's a lot of pressure because um, clearly an organization of this size needs to constantly question itself. It needs to evolve its operating systems. But where it becomes really a pleasure to lead UNDP is to discover an institution that because it is so grounded across the world, well over 90% of everything we do, our staff, our resources, are in the country teams that work on the ground with our partner countries. And that means you have an institution that is remarkably well networked across the world. It is a great connector, first of all, of you know innovation, of insights, of what is happening in different countries with policy reforms, poverty eradication, transitions towards a, a green economy. And at the same time, there is a tremendous flexibility because the United Nations Development Program is really the UN's promise to be a partner and to walk alongside a country in its national development path. And it has remarkable trust in many of the program countries that it has acquired over many years. It has flexibility. But, and here comes the challenge, how do you maintain an ability to really be a unique value proposition? Because, you know, to just be an agency in the UN is not enough. We are the United Nations Development Program, and much of what I have tried to do over the last four years is to rediscover an element of passion in looking to the future of development and derive from that the kinds of offers and services that we can provide to countries, to communities, to actors in the development arena. And that has been a fascinating journey because um, then, surprisingly, an institution like UNDP can actually be remarkably agile. It can innovate. I hope we will talk in, in, in due course about some of the, you know, new frontiers that we have been developing but in a nutshell it's a fascinating role to have the ability to lead such an institution and at the same time it is a tremendous responsibility because inextricably it is linked also to that perception of multilateralism In a lot of studies that I've seen, including some done by my colleagues that actually rank the UN agencies, UNDP comes out on top on many of these rankings. You do have a lot of influence. And I've seen this in China, in India, in Malawi, very different countries. The UNDP resident coordinator has enormous influence and, and knowledge and, and oversight over some of the development challenges. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Akim, is that development, the, the notion of development is, of course, a very contested topic. It's, it's, a, it's a notion that not everyone agrees what it actually means. And development is often about politics. How do you think UNDP as an agency, as you were saying, you're always innovating, how do you keep up with the politics of global development? You know, it must be surely a challenge to be involved in political decisions or to influence political decisions, and yet at the same time, you know, not impose your views and decisions on others. Well, there is an element of science and, and uh, you know, technical focus that certainly makes it a little bit easier for an agency such as the United Nations Development Program not to be seen as sort of a mini security council arena and yet as you rightly point out we don't live in some political vacuum we are very much part of a global set of forces that are shaping the geopolitical agenda and, and economic interests and you know um it it is not surprising i'm sure to your listeners also during uh, the previous u.s administration we were scrutinized we were pressured in fact the administration had four years running asked for a complete zeroing out of um, U.S. funding to UNDP. And interesting enough, it was a bipartisan consensus in the Congress that actually maintained the financing of UNDP. And I think therein lies an interesting message. UNDP is seen as not an apolitical actor, but it is seen as an actor who ultimately is of use and helpful to the international community by virtue of what we do. Sometimes in some of the worst crisis contexts, whether it is Yemen or in Afghanistan um, or in the Central African Republic or in the Sahel region, at other points in time, it is because it facilitates a new approach to addressing issues that are fundamental to development choices. The Human Development Report, you know, the flagship report that UNDP uh, began 30 years ago, 
to this day, it is a vehicle that um, is perhaps the most read, you know, development report in the world because it is both a way of trying to think about the future while reflecting on the present and doing so with that ability to not be beholden to one ideology or one national interest. And I think that thought leadership that UNDP can bring on top of its, you know, thousands of points of intervention on the ground makes it a unique um, value proposition to the international community. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Professor Sen and my, Professor Makbulal Haq's contribution. Professor Sen is my guru, and I've had numerous conversations with him about, you know, the concept of human development. And it is really, as you say, well entrenched in the development discourse now. Let's move on to discussing, Akim, how the UN's or the UNDP's priorities perhaps have changed in the past couple of years because of the pandemic and potentially new priorities for your organization. Because I read this very interesting report that Mariana Mazzucato and you were part of it on COVID-19 and the need for dynamic state capabilities. And I found that really fascinating because in many ways, you know, one could learn from the experience that we've had that, you know, you could create safety nets for, for informal sector workers. You could have all kinds of innovation, experimentation, use data, digitalization in, in new ways, foster new types of partnerships. And one of the conclusions of that report I found really interesting. In fact, it says that effective governance can't just be conjured up overnight and while the pandemic is really serious, it is especially a challenge for countries that have ignored investments in long-term capacities and in dynamic capabilities of the public sector. How do we actually govern and direct resilient production system? You know, what do we do with public service infrastructure, but also capabilities in terms of, you know, how can UNDP, how can we all pitch in to anticipate, adapt, and learn? How do we actually help citizens' initiatives to, to be scaled up and, and have more influence? What do we do with digital platforms? How realistic, Akim, is it that we'll have countries following up on some of these recommendations? What would you say are the things that you would like to prioritize in the immediate future? On our website, undp.org, you will find a just um, adopted new strategic plan for UNDP that will guide and define our work and our contribution to what happens next in the world of development for the next four years. And I think for those of you who are interested, um, please take a look because it reflects a lot of thinking about precisely the kinds of phenomena that you just alluded to. And I think I want to begin briefly by saying one of the things that I have been very keen to articulate explicitly that UNDP must also reflect a fundamental shift that began many years ago in, first of all, the notion of development cooperation. And let's not uh, call development development cooperation the same thing. I mean, development cooperation is an instrument of, of how nations work and cooperate with one another. Development really is the constant search for what a nation, a community wants to do next. It is articulating choices and then making those choices. And I think UNDP was born out of a, an era where development cooperation was essentially, um, you know, the transfer of, of technology, of expertise, of development models from north to south. I think we live in an entirely different world today. And to my mind, development cooperation has ceased to be um, a sort of frontier driver or variable. We are in an entirely different era where national development choices, um, international um, developments and cooperation point far more towards a paradigm in which we have to find ways in which we can connect, in which we can co-invest and therefore we can cooperate. And that is a very different interpretation. Now, another key feature, I think, of the shifts that have happened just in the last maybe five to 10 years is that we have overcome this uh, polarity that for so long defined the development discourse. There were those who believed that state-led development was the only option and, you know, it was public policy that was going to advance development. Then the world swung into the other extreme, that it was markets, the private sector, that was much more efficient at solving problems and therefore the less state, the less government, the better. I think, um, as always, when you go to the extremes, you find that you uh, probably do need to correct for those. And we are in an era today where 
the interaction between public policy and markets and the private sector and consumers is, I think, a far more dynamic and integrated way of thinking. And that is partly where we are now really exploring new frontiers. Take the notion of investment. We have massive challenges ahead of us in terms of inequality, climate change, energy transitions, digitalization. There is no way that public budgets will be able to carry that investment alone. So we have to leverage and we have to incentivize markets, financial markets, investors, the private sector. But how do you regulate a digital ecosystem in which basically the main players right now are larger than most countries in the world? And that is one of the you know interesting frontiers. So digitalization, I think, has emerged as perhaps the most dramatic variable that has changed in just a few years. And the pandemic has very much illustrated and I would argue probably, you know, moved us forward by five years in terms of the application of digital, but also to understand how it will permeate virtually every aspect of development. And here is an area where UNDP already three years ago began with a digital UNDP strategy to recognize that this was going to be fundamental to what countries would need to think about and act on in the years to come. And we would need to be a relevant partner by connecting best practices, by helping countries, not just to look at the last mile of connecting a fiber optic cable, but rather, how do you invest in an inclusive digital economy? And so to your point about um, the paper that we published together with uh, Mariana's Institute, dynamic capabilities of the public sector is very much where UNDP is focusing on. How do we support governments in, first of all, having the ability to look forward, to anticipate what is happening, then arrive at a consensus on not just the technological or financial side, but also the normative side of the, the decisions that need to be made. Digitalization could be the greatest driver of inequality in the next few years. That was the 2019 Human Development Report alert. It could also be the greatest driver of greater equity. It will not happen by default. This is by design of choices in public policy and investment. So. Here are a few examples of how, when I talk about making UNDP a vehicle for countries to be able to work on the future of development, it is very much about the choices that need to be articulated clearly within a country. Then national political dynamics and normative um, choices will clearly be uh, the privilege of that country. It's not for UNDP to decide that, but we will be there always trying to articulate, first of all, what it is that are the options for a country, and secondly, what are pathways for him to then move forward and realize those decisions? In a way, you could say that it's great to have a plan. And the paper that I was referring to is a plan. You, you can have a vision. You know where to go. And yet you're hindered because there is a lack of funds. There isn't enough from foreign aid or development cooperation. There simply isn't money. And this is something that the UN, as I understand it, has always struggled with. Sometimes member states don't pay. Some states are more generous than others. Within many of the donor countries, including in my own country, Norway, you know, we, we are proud of, of how generously we fund UN agencies. But even here, the local political discussion is often very polarized. And some people say that we should really be prioritizing ourselves. And the pandemic has made a number of these countries look inward. So you can have a good plan, but there isn't money. And then, of course, you have new emerging global actors. You have South-South cooperation. You have all of these other modalities of development cooperation. And then you have the UN in addition. So what I'm trying to get at here, Akim, is how can we find common ground, not just for the plan, but also to finance that plan? Well, that is the daily struggle of every UN institution. I think of every non-governmental, non-profit institution. We you know, are not operating like Jeff Bezos, where you essentially create the funding. We are not even in the privileged position of the World Bank, which you know, through either replenishments essentially is given a pot of money and can then begin to operate according to, you know, the agreed priorities. The United Nations lives in a constant struggle of trying to make ends meet. And, you know, when I begin the financial year, essentially 88% of what we will expend through that year is um, not guaranteed income. As I mentioned, we have roughly 11, 12% core funding 
and the rest is you know a series of projects and this is i think sometimes where i wish our you know partners in parliaments and also in governments would speak a little bit more let's say creatively about the value for money that they actually receive in return i think this perception that the united nations is in a sense a, a place where bureaucracy and inefficiency reign is um, often a misperception and and i think it would do us all good if we could have more agreed criteria and metrics to actually measure this um, i think my simple answer to this is look i can sit and bemoan it or i can try and persuade the world that it gets real value for money from UNDP. And I think with the measures that we have taken in the last three, four years, I see a turnaround, although in fact last year, but this is then also a product of the vagaries of domestic politics. Norway reduced some of the core funding to UNDP. Um, you know, I'm hoping that this is a, a short-term phenomenon. The UK, you know, cut its ODA in the midst of the pandemic by billions of pounds. Uh, these are decisions that obviously are to me profoundly disturbing because at a moment where we should be stepping up, we are also seeing some countries step back. On the other hand, others step forward. And for UNDP, I think what we have seen is, you know, an increase in core funding, an increase in overall financing through UNDP. And I think that is in part because with the agenda that I have put in place with my management team and with the positive feedback we are getting from countries, whether it is on digitalization, whether it is on innovation. For instance, we have established in less than two and a half years, a network of 92, what we call UNDP accelerator labs. These are essentially teams that are now embedded in our 90 country offices, specifically with a mandate to look at innovation within the country, to be a new eyes and ears for our development input. They are a tremendous success in terms of bringing within UNDP a new capability. We have established UNDP with another area that is fundamental to what happens next in development, financing. Our finance sector hub is today at the forefront of developing, for example, the norms and standards that allow countries to raise SDG bonds on financial markets. We are developing tools um, that have, for instance, significant potential to influence the G20 in terms of its sustainable finance working group that we have been invited to be the secretariat. Now, all this may sound a little bit bureaucratic, but these are capabilities that allow us to be relevant to when a country says, how on earth are we going to finance an energy transition, poverty eradication, coping with the pandemic and, and building back better or building forward? We are also supporting in 70 countries now integrated national financing frameworks that are looking at how can a country align public finance, private sector finance that are domestic, but also international, and thereby multiply the investments that are needed. These are the frontiers of enabling different decisions to emerge and our strategic plan has also therefore made UNDP much more ambitious, for instance, on an issue such as climate change. We simply cannot go on just doing pilot projects or small distinct projects. We made a climate promise two years ago to support 100 countries in preparing their national climate strategies for Glasgow. I'm proud to say that we have been invited now by 119 countries with whom we have worked over the last two years. We have also made a commitment in our new strategic plan that in the next four years, we will try, I cannot guarantee it because it depends, as you say, on funding, financing, many factors, but to be central to being able to support 500 million people, half a billion people to gain access to clean energy, because we simply have reached a point in time where significant transformational actions are necessary. And an institution like UNDP has to commit itself to be part of that ambition. So Akim, when the 2030 agenda was adopted by the whole world community in 2015, September 2015, there was this enthusiasm, this euphoria that we finally, we have a plan. Now we're not just talking about developing countries. We're also talking about us, the whole world. We are all in the same boat and we have the sustainable development goals that will help bind us together. And staying on the issue of financing, one of the crucial elements of this plan, the 2030 Agenda, was that the private sector should be involved, right? Actively. 
Now, I've never seen the private sector show as much enthusiasm for global development as they have since 2015. However, others would say that that enthusiasm has not translated into adequate financing. What are your thoughts there in terms of the role of the private sector in bankrolling the SDGs? Let's begin by acknowledging that I think the private sector writ large has been in some ways far more engaged and interested in understanding the SDGs than they were with the Millennium Development Goals, which to me was a surprise. Mm -hmm. It began to some extent, you know, with, um, for example, um, you know, seeing at the World Economic Forum in Davos in, you know, the stands and the, the, the window fronts where, you know, the big corporations then um, have their meetings. The, the, the logo, um, you know, the symbols of the 17 SDG goals appear and, you know, some cynics said, well, it's, they're so nice and colorful <laughs> in the window front. But let's put that skepticism aside for a moment. I think particularly when you look at the finance sector, it is quite remarkable how they have begun to look at the SDGs as something that actually has to do with their core business and the future of their business. And that, that I think, has to do with something that I've often understood out of these discussions with financial sector leaders, they look at the future in terms of risks. And, you know, to me, it became increasingly clear that what we did in 2015 and the years leading up to it is translate a shared sense of the major risks that confronted us as nations and on which essentially being able to act on them would require us to act together. So the SDGs are, if you want, an inverse articulation of the great risks to our common future and where we are bound to have to work together if you want to tackle them. So these 17 goals suddenly become actually quite a comfortable template through which to look at the future, look at risks. And therefore the finance sector, I think, began to realize very early on, if we could get governments and public policy to tackle some of these issues, this would reduce the risk for us as a world financial market. And therefore, we have an interest in promoting action on the SDGs. Now, the second step, obviously, is to get the finance world to invest and to co-finance the SDG implementation. That has been slower. And interesting enough, this was one of the triggers for when I began to um, initiate the finance uh, and SDG impact work in UNDP three years ago. The finance sector told us, look, we don't need you on the financial engineering, but where we really struggle is on the impact front, impact intelligence, impact monitoring, mm -hmm. because there is more and more capital that is asking for us to be seen to be uh, investing in good outcomes. So how do we do this? And that's why we developed these SDG impact norms and standards. And, you know, just in the first few months, it's been interesting from Mexico, two SDG bonds, uh, both close to, I think, a billion dollars. Uzbekistan, the new development bank, all in the range of 800 to a billion dollars, taking, in a sense, the SDGs as a way to go to the financial markets and raise capital. And that is how, you know, a very significant new, I think, opportunity arises for countries, first of all, to be able to leverage financial markets with the SDGs, and secondly, for financial sector actors to finally step up and be part of the solution through the very essence of what they have, namely money and funds, as opposed to simply being spectators and thereby becoming part of the problem, which is so often where we have found in the past the finance sector not being an ally in driving consequential shifts and transformations. Yeah, you know, when I've spoken to some of the major CEOs who've shown considerable interest in sustainable development, they've said a bit of the same thing as you just pointed out, that, you know, we're willing, but we are not sure about the risks involved. We don't know. We don't have enough local information, you know, maybe academics should help us, you know, we need somebody to guide us. And so that was one set of issues in, in terms of knowledge, in terms of information. Another had to do with, you know, cushioning risks that we need public sector guarantees. We, we should not be allowed to take the risks on our own. And that has led to, as I'm sure you're aware, many people, you know, doubting the genuine intention because some private sector actors, in fact, many are making the argument that being involved in sustainable development is win-win. It's good for the company, good for profits, and it's good for the world. But others are more skeptical, saying, you know, look at what has happened with, with COVAX and, and all the subsidies that the pharmaceuticals got. 
that you know it is all about just profits and not giving something back. So I, I find that that debate to be extremely polarized. That while yes, there are companies showing uh, a lot of interest, there are also other parts of society that are pushing back and are accusing the private sector of SDG proofing or SDG washing their activities. Look, this is neither a new debate nor will it ever disappear because I think it is a legitimate debate. I think it's a legitimate way to question whether, you know, genuine the net outcome of, let's say, a public-private partnership or a co-investment strategy or leveraging, you know, uh, financial sector actors in investing in SDG outcomes really does um, produce these results. And I think, as always, where it is critical for us to think carefully about this is how do regulatory frameworks, how does the public policy environment create the conditions whereby these outcomes actually become possible? Let's take the vaccines, for example. We put them all in one pot, but the fact of the matter is that Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are essentially increasing their prices already now in, in new orders. This is a multi-billion dollar business that is growing exponentially. AstraZeneca from the beginning with the University of Oxford, committed to actually not making the provision of these vaccines a profit-making enterprise. So, as always, there are different kinds of businesses and different kinds of business leaders. And I think what we need to figure out is the fact that businesses want to make profit, I think most of us can acknowledge, is essentially not um, a sin. The question is when it becomes to the detriment of society. And, you know, we are witnessing just now an extraordinary digital revolution that on the one hand is fascinating on the other hand it is rolling over many developing countries that have not even begun to legislate for these kinds of digital enterprises and therefore the dominant players globally are inserting themselves in local markets where there is really no legislative and regulatory framework to protect citizens citizens rights to privacy um, also monopolies that are distorting markets and we i think have to understand that the private sector is a force that can be leveraged, yet it also needs to be regulated. And therein lies, I think, the same logic that would, uh, to me, guide the, you know, the, the engagement of financial sector actors in investing in public good outcomes. And, you know, we had a debate, you remember, in the 90s uh, that the bank particularly became a center of, of, of um, controversy around this, which was, this notion of privatization. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, the policy advice then was to privatize, for instance, water, water supply. Clearly, that caused a major backlash because you cannot privatize something that is essentially a fundamental right of citizens to have access to. As, for example, the South African constitution actually enshrined in its way of, of um, you know, creating a fundamental right to access to water at the time that Nelson Mandela became president. So, over the years, I think we learned that uh, you cannot always come with this argument of privatization, including of fundamental assets, but you can very easily create a public tender in which you invite private companies to provide water-related services, be it in terms of sewage treatment plants, be it in terms of maintaining and managing distribution systems within very clear parameters that include public good and public um, interest legislation and conditions. And I think that is the era in which we find ourselves today, where also going back to the work that we do with Mariana Mazzucato and, and UNDP, what we're trying to describe is a different form of state role, not only as the passive regulator, but developing new capabilities in order to understand how to shape future, future markets. We cannot afford for public policy to always be in catch-up mode. And that is why, again, in UNDP, I've put thinking about the future of development so high up on the agenda, because by anticipating what the choices, the dilemmas, some of the risks will be of the next few years in terms of technology developments on the financial markets, we can make governments more capable of fulfilling their public promise to their citizens. You know, we can't really have a conversation without mentioning the climate emergency and I actually very much enjoyed reading a report. I believe UNDP actually commissioned this, the, the People's Climate Vote. Apparently, 1.2 million respondents uh, were part of this survey of public opinion on climate change. And what is particularly interesting there, I think, is that 
despite the uh, pandemic, etc., there's still this widespread recognition that climate change really is a global emergency and not just in certain countries. In fact, in all the countries, I think you surveyed around 50 countries. What I'd like to discuss with you, Akim, is that there were four sets of policies, climate policies that apparently emerged as the most popular globally. One had to do with uh, conservation of forests and land. Then another had to do with solar, wind and renewable energy. A third had to do with climate-friendly farming techniques. And fourth, investing more in green businesses and jobs. So in many ways, you know, we can have a lot of data information on what people want, what is available, what is possible. We can try and get, you know, funding for these things. But how do we also do all of this while there is this growing anxiety that nothing works, that, you know, we're all just doomed? So this climate change debate sometimes, at least in our parts of the world, is often characterized by this, you know, everything is failing. There's just, you know, horror stories. How do we, within some of these fields that I just mentioned in terms of forests or power, how do we create this more positive narrative that it is possible? I mean, you have success stories like Kerala, you have success stories, you know, such as Rwanda or even Senegal during the pandemic. How do we talk more about what is working rather than just focusing on doom and gloom? Well, then now you've opened the Pandora's box and <laughs> for a part two of this podcast, because you are touching on something that I feel very passionately about. And I think you've put your finger precisely on a dilemma we face. The harsh truth is that, you know, we are in a race against time and on current projections, trajectories, we are actually losing that race against the clock in terms of climate change. There is no ambiguity about that. In fact, uh, many scientists are already giving us almost the red card in the sense of saying, look, you may have already passed the point of no return in terms of a 1.5 degree future. And I think that dramatic realization is not one we should either, you know, um, dilute or create ambiguities around because I think it is part of understanding quite how serious our situation is, quite how dramatic the decisions are that we must take in the coming months and years. So I, you know, having also led the United Nations Environment Program, spent many years trying to help the world understand um, that this is not science fiction we're talking about. This will unfold not in your children's future lives, but actually still in our lifetime. And sadly, reality has proven both the scientists and you know people such as myself many around the world right no cause for celebration as you can imagine but you know the irony is that actually the world is responding and you know some of the announcements and decisions that have happened in the last 18 months in the midst of this pandemic are remarkable because five years ago even four years ago they would have been considered revolutionary in fact most people would not have believed that they would be possible and that has to do, for example, with the commitment to net zero by so many countries. We have seen these stimulus packages that are now investing literally hundreds of billions of dollars in the transition towards greener economies. And it's still something we have to be very watchful about because I think our concern is that, yes, the announcements are great, but will it actually translate into real financing? But look at the European Green Deal. I just a few months ago was in Italy and I was fascinated to see that Italy now has been given 60 billion euros out of the allocation of the Green Deal in Europe for its recovery that has been handed to the Minister for Ecological Transformation in order to invest in the greening of Italy's economy. 60 billion euros. You have seen the announcement um, by the US administration that just 12 months ago had left the Paris Agreement, now rejoined it and had the President of the US commit to doubling the US contribution to 11 billion a year to international climate finance. You had China finally closing the door to coal-fired power stations and infrastructure being supported internationally as China was still doing. So I could go on and, and you are absolutely right. We don't have the time right now, but let me say the following. We are facing an ever narrower window of opportunity in which to accomplish these transitions that we know and I think largely accept now are inevitable and imperative. And at the same time, 
we are also seeing ever faster progress. And what the Paris Agreement tried to design into this was to recognize the inability of the world in one you know, big step to align in terms of what is needed with um, what we were able to deliver. That's why the Paris Agreement also had this five-year cycle of raising the levels of ambition. The reason why UNDP has been so heavily invested in working with countries on their nationally determined contributions, these national strategies they would bring to Glasgow, was that unless the Paris Agreement can prove that it can ratchet up progress, we indeed will not have much reason to believe in the future of the Paris Agreement. Okay, one final question, if you can uh, briefly reflect on. You just mentioned that, of course, the UN celebrated 75 years last year. 25 years from now, what will the UN look like? I think it will, in fact, still be judged by and be driven by the very principles and ideals that I think um, brought it into existence in 1945. Remember, it was in the darkest moment of the Second World War, not after the Second World War, that the future design of a United Nations was actually conceived of and uh, people began to develop it. And I think sometimes, as I've said before, out of the darkest moments in human history come some of the most bold and courageous ideas. So I think the the United Nations as an ideal and an idea will be with us in 25 years' time. What the United Nations will do, how it will have evolved, how it will also have changed and reflects better the true diversity of, of uh, the world in a 21st century economic context, political shifts, that I think um, is something that uh, everybody is struggling with right now. Clearly, the UN has been in a lock-in in terms of its political evolution. And I think that's perhaps the frontier that the Secretary General has also signaled we need to now take on with his common agenda. Because if it cannot evolve the way the UN functions in today's world, then, you know, ideals are great, but they have to be relevant to the present. And this is always going to be the challenge of how a United Nations system can evolve alongside the mandate, the support, and the legitimacy that it has in, in the world of today. Akim, it was really nice to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. Dan, it's been a great privilege, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.